welcome to this late hour, a three-part special of the Shroud of Turin. I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Welcome back to the second part of a three-part special on one of the most studied religious artifacts in history, the Shroud of Turin. If you have not listened to episode 5 or part 1 of this special, you want to go back and listen before continuing. In this second part of my interview with professional photographer Barry Schwartz of the Shroud of Turin Research Project, we dive more into the carbon-14 dating issues. Mr. Schwartz also addresses common arguments against the Shroud's authenticity and gives us a very honest understanding of his own faith journey, one that may surprise you. Come along as we further explore one of the most fascinating relics in all of Christendom, the Shroud of Turin. They said that the reason the carbon dating was skewed was because new material had been sewn into the cloth in that area, skewing the date to a much later date. Well, that was the first explanation for the radiocarbon dating that didn't require me to believe that some magical science that hasn't been discovered yet occurred or something, you know, outside of the scientific arena might have occurred This was something plausible that you don't need to be a physicist to understand. So I immediately said that, look, um, let me publish that on shroud.com. And they agreed. So I published it on shroud.com. Now, earlier I mentioned Ray Rogers, the lead chemist on the STIRP team on our team from Los Alamos National Labs. And when I published that, within, I don't know, a day or so of my putting it on the internet, I got a phone call from Ray and he was yelling at me what kind of stuff are you putting on your website? These people aren't scientists. They're the lunatic fringe and they only use their eyes and they didn't use chemistry. Well, he was a chemist. So he thought if only chemistry could answer the question. And then he said to me, look, I have a sample that was given to me in 1978 by Professor Reyes. And it was taken from just below where the radiocarbon sample was taken from. He says, and I have that in my safe and I've never done anything with it. He says, you give me five minutes and I'm going to prove these people were wrong. Well, about an hour and a half later, the phone rang and it was Ray Rogers again. And this time he was much more sedate and quiet and calm. And he said, well, I don't believe it. I said, what, Ray? He said, I think they're right. (laughs) because he had found cotton interwoven with the linen and it had been dyed with rose matter dye from the matter root plant in a gum Arabic base, all of which he determined by chemistry to take the new material that had been woven into that strip there and to match it to the color of the shroud, the rest of the shroud. And so Ray Rogers, this brilliant chemist from Los Alamos, who's going to prove these people wrong in five minutes, took him about an hour and a half to confirm that what Benford Marino believed was there, he was able to confirm with chemistry. And so he then wrote a paper 
They spent seven months putting them through the ringer before it was published in a journal called Thermochemica Acto. We all read that one, don't we? Anyway, this <laughs> is one of these high-end journals that you need a, you know, a PhD just to read the articles. And they published his article, and that was the first challenge in the peer-reviewed literature to the radiocarbon dating of the shroud. Now, let's go back and talk about these three labs for a moment, since we're on that topic. Sure. As soon as the results were leaked, because they were leaked before their paper was ever published in Nature, the results were leaked. We know who did it. We won't mention any names. As soon as it was leaked that they were going to prove the shroud was a fake, the Oxford lab received one million pounds sterling, which is about two and a half million dollars in 1988. Um, one million pounds sterling anonymous contribution for debunking the shroud and to use to set up a permanent lab at the Oxford University. And here's where it really gets a little weird. Um, they had appointed the head of research of the British Museum, Dr. Michael Tite is his name. They had appointed him as the overseer of the three different laboratories. And Dr. Michael Tite resigned from the British Museum as soon as that money got to Oxford and took a permanent chair at Oxford with some of that money. Now, the other thing that's weird, for 27 years, the British Museum and any of the three laboratories refused to release their raw data. Refused, which is unheard of. Once your paper is published, you make the raw data available so other researchers who might want to repeat your experiment or at least evaluate it have access to the raw data. They've refused to release it until 2017, 2018, when a French Shroud scholar, who also happens to be a, a law student, young man, went to England and used the Freedom of Information Act and forced the British Museum to release the raw data. This gentleman's name is Tristan Casabianca. He then brought on board one expert trout scholar and two experts in uh, uh, doing the analysis of the data itself. And they determined that that strip that was cut out of the shroud had a continuous um, dating at one end to the other of hundreds and hundreds of years. In other words, it was inconsistent, inhomogeneous, and so there is nowhere on the strip that they cut and dated that could be used to date anywhere else on that cloth. There was like a gradient of dates that went from one end of that strip to the other. So how can you use that sample to date anywhere else on the cloth? Now, this whole thing could have been avoided had they taken a second sample from anywhere else on that cloth, but they didn't. And so we now have five or six peer-reviewed scientific articles in credible journals disputing the radiocarbon dating. And here's what we found out once they did an analysis of the raw data. They threw away certain results that they got because if they had kept those results, they could not have achieved the 95% accuracy that they claimed. Now, all of this is out there, but you know, Shroud is a fake makes a great headline. Shroud is not a fake not so much. Hmm. Well, it sounds like there were countless issues with the way they tested and some perhaps sneaky things going on 
behind closed doors. Uh, you know, somebody said to me, do you mean we, we should follow the money? And I said, well, I didn't put it in those terms, but why not? <laughs> I've heard it stated, and, and I know this is not your field, so uh, forgive me if this, you know, is not something you would know, but uh, I have heard it in one of the many talks I've heard on the Shroud that uh, you've, you mentioned, you know, they should have taken a second sample. I've also heard it said that it would have been better to take a sample near one of the scorch marks because of the fact that when you test something for carbon, you have to burn it. So I don't know if that's, if that has any. Actually, I know exactly who said that was Ray Rogers, the chemist oh, from Los Alamos who oh, said that. Well, there you go. He, he suggested that they take some of the carbonized material from around those burns and use that because they'd be easier to clean because they've already been burnt. And so that it would be easy to remove any pot uh, potential contaminants that might be there. So, yes, that's correct. Uh, that's not what happened, but that's what Roger said. And there would have been ample material. You know, in 2002, they did a, quote, restoration of the shroud. They removed the patches that had been sewn in by the poor Claire sisters in 1534 to repair the fire damage of 1532. They steamed it to get out some of the creases, which is the worst thing you want to do to old linen. They vacuumed it, which means any future pollen studies have been eliminated because Ugh. they vacuumed it. Then they removed the backing sheet that the sisters had sewn on in 1534 and sewed a whiter, newer sheet onto the back without any chemical analysis to see if that new sheet that was now been on the back of the shroud for 20 years had been treated with anything that could be long-term harmful to the shroud. Nobody ever did that. So the restoration that was done not only lost some data, but potentially could put the, could have put the shroud at more risk. We don't know yet uh, how much that will do. But the side effect of putting a whiter sheet behind the cloth is it makes the image less visible. It cuts the apparent contrast. We photographers know that when you're photographing something that has some translucency, you put black, something black behind it. I had reams of black construction paper that I used to put behind things when I was photographing them so that I wouldn't get the bleed through the translucency. And so by putting a whiter cloth behind it, the shroud image is now, the apparent contrast has been lowered. So it's even harder to see the image mm. now. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about that. Uh, I'd, I'd heard or read somewhere about this um cleaning or restoration or whatever uh, we want to call it. But um, I mean, why, given the, <laughs> what they're handling would, would such uh, steps be taken to, to handle well, it in such a way? Well, it, the, the story gets even worse. So they brought in a woman from Switzerland who is a textile expert and she and her assistant handled the shroud for 32 days with no gloves, no hairnet, no mask, no protective clothing, touched with their hands at every square inch of that cloth. So people always talk about DNA. You know, we watch it solve a crime in 43 minutes on TV every time. Um, well, why don't we do DNA on this shroud? Well, contamination. And I've always said that, you know, I left my DNA on the shroud and I happen to be a long haired Jewish guy like the man of the shroud. Um, and anybody who's touched it, breathed on it, leaned over it, repaired it, every one of the sisters that repaired it in 1534, all of us left our DNA on that cloth. But that's completely overridden now by the fact that the textile expert 
in, in 2002 that did the restoration handled every square inch of it with no, absolutely no protective clothing or gear at all. So I always say now, if we were to do a DNA analysis of the man of the shroud, we'd find he was a Swiss woman. <laughs> yeah, it just seems a rather flippant kind of approach in handling such an important artifact. Well, I'll tell you what, there is, a, and I'm sure that this didn't win me any friends in Turin when I posted this page. Uh, there's a page on shroud.com called Comments on the Restoration. And about a dozen prominent shroud scholars of every ilk uh, wrote and sent me comments, which I published. And so anybody who wants to read what kind of the shroud community in general thought of this restoration, go to shroud.com, find the comments on the restoration page, and read what many of the other experts had to say about what was done. Well, outside of the carbon dating issue, which there, maybe I should call it the carbon dating issues. Um, yeah. What are what are some of the other, and you did mention a couple of these uh, earlier in our talk, but what are some of the other common arguments made against the Shroud's authenticity and how do you, or how would you come about refuting those? Well, okay, so... Um, I was at a, an evangelical conference in Colorado Springs some years ago. I was there with my friend, Russ Brialt, who's a well-known Shroud lecturer and scholar. And we were sitting there for three days. And the first two days we sat at a table and Russ had some Shroud images and stuff. And people kept coming up and telling us why the Shroud was a fake. Now this was an evangelical conference. So uh, Christians, but of the evangelical uh, ilk. And um, so I, I sort of started writing them down because the, I was blown away by what they were telling me. And the first thing they said was, uh, and so it, eventually, by the way, you can find this on shroud.com as well. I wrote an article called the top five reasons why some Christians are shroud skeptics. And the first one is, oh, it's a graven image. Well, I'm Jewish and we had a golden calf that cost us 40 years in the desert. So we know what a graven image is. And we have proven the shroud is not an artwork, which is required for it to be a graven image, something made by the hand of man. And we know that is not the case with the shroud and we've proven that. So that's one of the objections I get. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I am gonna talk about Paul in his letters to Corinthians, where he was chastising the men of Corinth for the way they were adorning their long hair. And so many have said to me, well, it says in Paul in Corinthians that long hair is forbidden. So this couldn't be Jesus because this guy has long hair. Well, that was written about 25 years after the crucifixion. It did not apply to Jesus or his disciples because they were Jews and they followed the laws of Moses. And if you go to any Orthodox Jewish community today, you'll see the men have long hair, beards and side locks because they're forbidden to trim their hair. So Jesus followed the laws of Moses. And so that's another one. The other is that linen strips are mentioned in the gospels. In the tomb, they mentioned several things. They mentioned the shroud, the burial shroud. They mentioned a second cloth folded and separate from the other. And they mentioned linen strips. So the main cloth, of course, would be the shroud. The second cloth they mentioned would be the face cloth that would have been placed over his head when he was removed from the cross and carried from the cross to the tomb 
It had blood and plural fluids on it, but no image. That, when I read that in the New Testament, I immediately said authentic Jewish burial, because to this day, anything with the decedent's blood on it, if it's readily available, is buried with the body. And when I read that in the New Testament, I said they gave Jesus an authentic Jewish burial. And the third thing are those linen strips. And so I've had people tell me that, look, it says there were linen strips, which means he was wrapped like a mummy. And this is a single cloth. So this can't be right. It's got to be a fake. Well, by the first century, even the Egyptians had stopped wrapping mummies that way. Those linen strips were necessary to bind the body into the shroud. Or if you went to move the body, a cloth would have just fallen off. So they make good sense to be there. And they were mentioned. It also says that, uh, was it Peter who went in with, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not a biblical scholar, but they saw and they believed. Well, what did they see in the tomb that made them believe if it wasn't the shroud, perhaps with the image that they saw on it? And why wouldn't it have been mentioned afterwards? Why doesn't anybody talk about this cloth in the, uh, in the gospels? Well, other than mentioning that it was there. And that's simply because Jews and Christians uh, came under the same kind of persecution and anything that might have been a pro-Christian image would have been destroyed by iconoclasts. So they had to hide this thing. They couldn't come running out of the tomb and go, look what we found. They couldn't <laughs> do that. Mm. And so they had to preserve it and hide it and protect it. And I think the very first depiction of Jesus in a um, is in the Domitia Catacombs in Rome. It's a fresco showing Jesus with the split beard looking exactly the way we see the man of the shroud looking. That's 285 approximately. So that's like 250 years after the events. So where was it for 250 years? Well, there are plenty of theories that abound, but because it wasn't well-documented, we can't say absolutely to a certainty where it was, but there are theories that it was rolled up and put in a tall clay jar. And some of the water stains on the cloth imply that that's exactly where it was hidden. And so it would have probably been hidden somewhere in a large room of clay jars, sort of in plain sight, but hidden off in a corner somewhere. And that's one possible theory. Well, so those, those are some of the reasons. Like, I, I, the other one is the beard. It mm -hmm. says, that uh, in the Gospels, they plucked his beard. Well, if you look at the man of the shroud, you'll see there's like a V-shaped chunk of his beard missing. Now, I happen to have a beard, and if I catch one hair in the zipper, it makes, brings tears to my eyes. Imagine ripping out a chunk of his beard, but nowhere in the Gospels does it say they gave Jesus a shave. Right. So those are some of the the reasons that I'm given by, uh, particularly by, like I said, by uh, evangelical Christians, but others as well. And so these are all explainable. And frankly, they're mostly misinterpretations. And I think sometimes people like those misinterpretations because they don't want to accept the shroud as authentic. And for whatever people have said, well, why would that be? And look, for many people, if they accept that the shroud is authentic, it changes everything in their own worldview. And people don't like to change. They like to keep things the way they are. <laughs> and so I think it's just natural for people to reject anything that kind of goes against their preconceived beliefs. Yeah, I know for me personally, which uh, many of my audience members will be evangelicals or in some variation thereof. And 
you know, for me, it almost seemed too good to be true because there's so much of what the cloth shows and demonstrates as you study it is, I mean, I don't even know how to put it into words. It's how about forensically accurate beyond yeah. what any artist could ever do, especially in medieval time. But, yeah. Beyond any reasonable doubt. That's what yes. I would say. Yes. yes. Which is what, you know, and, and it's the miraculous image that, uh, you know, essentially convinced me. Yeah. Now, hey, listen, you- it, it was enough to convince me a non-Christian that this has to be the real thing. And I'm going to quickly share a little anecdote about my little Jewish mother born in Poland, high school education, immigrant uh, as a child here to the U.S. Uh, She got to hear me uh, give a lecture in person in Pittsburgh, my hometown. Uh, I was back for a reunion, and my Catholic friend said, look, why don't you do a shroud talk while you're here? The archdiocese gave me a a, a venue and put me on the radio and, and promoted me in all the bulletins. So we had this wonderful event. Lots of people showed up. My mother, my cousins, my brother, you know, the whole family shows up. And I give my presentation on the shroud and we're driving home and my Jewish mother is silent. Frankly, when a Jewish mother is silent, be afraid. (laughs) And so I was, you know, wondering what she was thinking. And so I finally turned to her and I said, mother, what do you think? And she said, well, of course, it's authentic. And I said, what makes you say that? I was shocked. Took me 17 years to come to that conclusion. She hears one lecture and she's an Orthodox Jewish woman. And she immediately, she said, of course, it's authentic. They wouldn't have kept it for 2000 years if it had belonged to anyone else. It wouldn't have mattered. Now, when she first said that to me, I was kind of amused. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized what a profound observation that was because anyone who protected that piece of cloth put themselves at, at, at risk, absolutely. And so why would somebody take the risk to preserve something that's really a horrible thing? It's bloodstained and shows all these horrible tortures applied to this man. Why would somebody have kept that? Because it mattered, because it was for real and it belonged to that man. So my Jewish mother had a, a much quicker um, uh, acceptance of the shroud than I did. Mm. Interestingly. Now you had mentioned uh, that painting back from the two hundreds uh, that, you know, looks, Jesus looks off an awful lot like the, the image we see on the shroud. Correct. This, this brings up some of the history uh, of the shroud, which I know um, Dr. Cheryl White, I believe is that. Yep. She's on our board of directors. And I was just on the phone with her about, five minutes before you and I got connected today. And so. I, I know she's dealing with a lot of the history of the cloth and such, but uh, often what you'll hear also in evangelical circles is, oh, this is just some kind of Catholic hoax or something like that. How do you, how would you respond to? Yeah, to that? no, that's, uh, it's actually a very common question. That, and, and by the way, that's one of the other five things that I'd forgotten to mention earlier in my five reasons why some Christians are shroud skeptics. So I always tell my audience when I hear this. So somebody tell me, when did the, when did the Catholic church come into control of the shroud of Turin? And the answer is 1985. So I guess you could call it a Catholic relic today since 1985. But before that, it was owned by the Savoy family, the ruling family of Italy, for over 500 years, and it did not belong to the church. Now, 
the Savoys put it in Turin in 1578 and made Turin the custodians of it. But it was the king, King Umberto, the last king of Savoy. He's the one who authorized our team to examine the shroud, not the church. They didn't have the authority to do that. Only the king could do that. But when he died in 1983, he decided in his will not to leave it to the church as an institution because he understood it would take 130 cardinals to vote on anything. And we know how that can be. And so he understood that. He decided it should be left in the hands of one person and he left it to the living pope. So that was John Paul II at the time. And when he passed, it went to Pope Benedict and now to uh, current Pope uh, Francis. And they are the legal owner of the shroud. So one could call it a Catholic relic from 1985 on. But before that, it did not belong to the church. And the church had no say over what was done with it or to it. So as a Jewish man, I guess there are days when you must marvel at how you ever ended up speaking about the authenticity of what we would presume is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So when did you shift from skeptic to believer concerning the cloth? And what was the, was there a, a one piece of evidence that had most convinced you? Okay. Uh, first of all, let me say that uh, just to be clear, I am, I'm, I'm still Jewish. I'm, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a messianic Jew uh, as, uh, and I do get evangelized about twice a day, every day of the week. Um, and, which is fine. I mean, I, at the beginning, it was a little off-putting, and I thought, ah, I'm going to get evangelized a lot. And then I came to realize that's an expression of love. I mean, I'm not offended by that. I understand why people feel that way. But from my standpoint, um, it was 1995, and I was still uh, not sure. I, I was pretty, I knew it wasn't a painting or a scorch or a photograph. I knew that. But I wasn't sure yet it was authentic because the blood stains on the shroud remain reddish in color and old blood turns brown or black pretty quick. And that was sort of the kind of the, uh, the stopping point for me. And I was on the phone with Dr. Alan Adler, who was a blood chemist, who was a member of the STERP team and the third Jewish guy on our team, by the way. And I was on the phone with Al Adler in 95 and uh, he told me that he had pretty much come to accept it's got to be the real thing. This is another Jewish man. And I said, well, you know, nobody's answered the question about the red blood. And he got upset with me. He said, didn't you read my paper? And I said, yeah, well, that was 20 years ago. And uh, you're a chemist and I'm not. And so maybe I read it and didn't get it. <clears throat> he said, well, look, when I did the chemical analysis of the blood, I found a high content of bilirubin. Bilirubin is not a Jewish guy from New York, by the way. Uh, <laughs> bilirubin is <clears throat> a compound that comes out of the liver when somebody's beaten and tortured and goes into hypovolemic shock and doesn't get enough uh, fluids. And, and so it's a compound that comes and it gets into the bloodstream. And according to Adler, it's a uh, hemolytic agent, which means it breaks down the cell walls of the red blood cells, releasing the hemoglobin, and that's why it remained red forever. That was, a, that was the turning point, the tipping point for me. That was the last question I had, and I took Al's word. Now, there are some people in more recent years have disputed that only because 
the testing that's available today is far more substantial and more accurate and more in-depth than what Adler had available to him back in 78. But basically, that was, for me, the tipping point and said, okay, I no longer have anything to dispute. This has got to be the real thing. And that was 1995. And like I said, it was just some months later that I got the idea to build the website and shroud.com became the fulfillment of that obligation I felt for being in that room. Now this, this pushback about what people saying, well, the technology now is so much more advanced as far as testing the blood. I agree. Yeah, but, but I mean, that would assume we would be able to test it again. Ah, well, there's the crux of the matter. Uh, now that it's owned by the living Pope, uh, it's been 44 years since we did our in-depth series of tests, non-destructive tests, and no one has been given permission to do any further testing since then. And even I would love to see some of the newer instruments that are available. I mean, now we can do spectral analyses with a small handheld instrument. And, you know, people have said, well, you know, those Sterp guys were a bunch of religious fanatics, which of course isn't true. But I have to point out to people that if I have an instrument in my hand and I point it at the cloth and I take a reading and can publish the data that that instrument has provided, um, that, does, that instrument doesn't care if I'm Christian or Jew or Muslim or pagan. It doesn't matter. The data, the science, the scientific data that is published now is where the real answers lie. And that's where I was convinced. I wasn't convinced by somebody talking to me and, you know, trying to convince me of, that I should follow this. No, it was the science that brought me to my conclusion. It's got to be the real thing. And look, I don't have a problem with it. Like my mother said, of course they kept it. It belonged to somebody so important. Think of the impact he's had on our world to this day, more so than when he was alive. And so I can understand that this was preserved and why it was preserved. And I believe that that cloth in Turin is that cloth that wrapped his body. Hmm. So this is obviously kind of a, I don't know how to quite word this question based on some of the comments you made. And so forgive me if I stumble over it a little bit, but no problem. So how, given everything you know about the shroud, doing the website and, and obviously speaking with me and many other, uh, you know, over the years uh, regarding this, um, you know, admitting that the, the blood evidence is what ultimately shifted you to really seeing this yeah. as authentic. It was like the last piece of the puzzle, really. How, because you've, you've just, you know, uh, very graciously admitted, hey, I'm still an Orthodox Jew, well, I'm, I don't practice, so okay. I'm not practicing. Okay, okay. okay. I, I was raised Orthodox. Okay, so given everything you know about the shroud, how how does that sort of inform your own faith? Um, mm -hmm. You know, because you've stated, "Hey, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Messianic Jew." So, for you, like, how, how can you sort of help us along in understanding that? Sure. No, that's a very good question, a very valid question. So I'm glad you asked. So. After I accepted the shroud was authentic, um, I've spoken in cathedrals in Europe, stayed in monasteries, spoken in monasteries, uh, spoken in churches, spoken to 
every denomination you can think of, including Messianic Jews and Coptic Christians. And so I was, and I, look, I, I make my Catholic friends jealous when I tell them that I've attended a, a mass in the Holy Sepulcher in Bethlehem and Nazareth. I, I traveled to Israel all my life. People said, you're a Jew, when are you going to Israel? And I said, hey, if God wants me to go, he'll arrange it. And it was arranged by two Catholic priests. <laughs> so that's how I, you know, it's the story of my life. And so I was sort of searching because I was raised in an Orthodox home where God was part of everything, every day, period. Now, you know, my grandfather got up every morning and did the morning prayers and wore the talus and the, the you know, the phylacteries. And, and we lit the candles at the appropriate times on Fridays. And so, but I had walked away from faith completely. And for the first, I don't know, 50 some years of my life, past my bar mitzvah, which I did have, because uh, I promised my grandfather I would. Beyond that, God wasn't a part of my life. I didn't even think about it. But then it, because of the shroud, it, it kind of forced me to consider it. And I, I was looking externally. Uh, that's why I went to these masses, why I listened and why I tried to inform myself as to what all of these other faiths and the way they sort of spoke with God and dealt with God. And none of it seemed to connect for me. And then one day I realized that, that, that I was looking in the wrong direction. And so I sat myself down and for the first time as an adult, searched within my own heart for what I believed. I didn't even know what I believed. But when I searched in my heart, I was shocked and found that God had been there all along, just waiting for me to acknowledge him. So how many Jews can say it was the Shroud of Turin that brought them back to their faith in God? I can say that. It was because of the Shroud that it forced me to confront that belief. Now, like I said, I'm not practicing, and I have attended services of many different denominations, and all of them are beautiful and wonderful. But I'll tell you what I've learned, that the answer to faith is not on that piece of cloth, but in the eyes and hearts of those who look upon it. And even Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within us. And I have to agree, because that's where I reconnected with God. When I looked within myself, that's where I found God. So it wasn't an external thing at all. And so yeah, I mean, it brought me back to my faith, not in a, uh, an orthodox practicing way, but God is now a part of my life as much as he is for any other Christian or Muslim or any other person of faith. And the shroud did that. Hmm. Well, given the enormity of evidence surrounding the shroud, why do you think there are so many, even in churches, that still reject even the possibility of it being the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, I said earlier, first of all, people, once they've made up their mind about something, they really don't want to change. I mean, that's evident all over the planet these days. And so um, I think that it's conv more convenient to just stick with what you've got and don't want to change. Because look, in the cases of many people, particularly those who might be atheists or agnostic or whatever, um, accepting the shroud as authentic completely changes everything that they've thought about for the last, you know, uh, adult years of their lives. And so I think uh, some people just prefer not to want to confront it because it's going to cause them to have to rethink a lot of things that they've 
taken for granted, perhaps for most of their lives. Um, the other thing is this, um, I've uh, debated a number of the skeptics and, you know, they're it's kind of laughable. They, they don't want to debate with me anymore because I can quote all the science and they can't. So <laughs> they've decided that I'm the, I'm the wrong guy to debate when it comes to the shroud science. But they, they do the same thing. They mention a couple of things um, that skeptics always bring up. And then they immediately accuse the shroud team, the STERP team that I was a part of, of being a bunch of religious fanatics. And of course, that's completely false. That's not true at all. People have, have chastised me for not publishing the religious affiliations of the team members on the list of our team members that are on our website. And I would have to first know their religious affiliation. And I do know who the Jewish guys were. Vern Miller and I were good friends. He was the chief scientific photographer. I knew he was Mormon. Uh, Ken Stevenson, who was on our team, uh, was, uh, is evangelical. And so I knew that because he was very open about that. But the rest of the guys, a lot of these guys are from Los Alamos and Sandia Laboratories, both weapons laboratories. These were not a bunch of religious fanatics. Did they have faith? Yeah, but they kept it to themselves because the science is what we were there about, not about faith. And like I said, the instrumentation we used collected the data that we published so that we couldn't falsify the data with our own personal biases because those instruments did not have a personal bias. And so I think that uh, people are going to reject it or accept it. I've also seen people who uh, heard one of my lectures and told me that I helped bring them back to their faith. I mean, those are the unintended consequences of simply telling the truth. And that's all I have to worry about. People say, oh, well, you know, you know all this stuff. Look, my job is easy. All I have to do is get up and be honest. I don't have to make up any stories or twist anything to fit any preconceived notions. Nobody was a bigger skeptic than I was. But the evidence is there that convinced me it's got to be the real thing. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't have any problem with that at all. And so, uh, but other people seem to. So, But I don't worry about it. My job is simply to be honest, tell people what we know about it and allow them then to make up their own minds. If you read the opening paragraph on shroud.com, it's probably the smartest thing I ever wrote, and I wrote it 26 years ago. It says, we believe that given the facts, you have to make up your own mind about this. So we're not trying to convince anybody of anything. Hmm. And that's why I believe the website has been successful. Scientists can come there and not feel that somebody's pushing religion at them. People of faith can come and not feel that we're excluding them over the science. Right. It's there for everybody. And, and let me just point out, we don't put uh, trackers or cookies on anybody's site. We do not monetize our visitors. We have no advertising on the website. That's why I formed a nonprofit organization to fund it so that we wouldn't have to have advertising. And so it's a place where you can come and remain anonymous and study as long as you want. And like I jokingly said earlier, if you're coming to shroud.com, pack a lunch and a snack, you'll be there a while. But at the same time, it's a place where you can come and you can study this at your own pace with nobody pressuring you in any direction other than here's the evidence, make up your own mind. Well, are there any other elements unique to the Shroud that you'd like to touch on before we start wrapping up the interview? 
Not really. I mean, we've covered the most critical one, I think, was the radiocarbon dating, which, of course, has been the bane of all of our existences for the last 30 years. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it took 27 years just to get our hands on the raw data from the three labs. And uh, like I said, what they determined was they excluded certain readings if they had kept those readings, they could not have achieved a 95% certainty that they claimed in their paper. So what can I tell you? Th those are facts. I'm not making any of that up. And uh, the business of uh, the gentleman from the British Museum, it's all a matter of public record. It's in the British press. So uh, we're not saying anything that uh, is not true. These are all facts that have occurred over the years. But I will say this kind of a final thought on the carbon dating. I believe they understood that radiocarbon, that the Shroud of Turin would put radiocarbon dating on the map. And it certainly has. So they were very successful in that respect. Anytime you read anything about radiocarbon dating, they always mention that this is what debunked the Shroud of Turin. So they, they achieved the purpose. If that was their purpose, they achieved it. That Radiocarbon dating is world-renowned now because of the Shroud of Turin. So if someone were to come and ask you this question, what, how would you answer? Does this piece of linen cloth show us the image of the living Christ? Well, according to the forensic pathologists and medical examiners who have studied the Shroud, the man on the Shroud is dead. Hmm. So people say, well, it must be a a resurrection related image. And I always say then, well, may, let's call it a pre-resurrection image if that's the case. But we as science uh, scientists, we cannot really comment on the resurrection event. Nobody witnessed it. We don't know what the mechanism of resurrection is. And look, God can do it any way he wants. I mean, I, I always said, if God wants to put an image on a piece of cloth, he can do it within the realm of the universe that he created without having to break the rules that he himself created himself, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think that um, trying to prove the resurrection with the shroud, I don't think science can go there. And I've always said to people, look, if you accept that this image was formed by the resurrection, what do you care what the science says? Why do you need the science to support your faith? If that's the case, then maybe the issue is your faith. Maybe you should go back and re-examine your faith <laughs> if you need science to support it, because the whole idea of faith is to accept without evidence, without proof, without science. Well, do you have any closing remarks for our audience today? Well, I, I would simply say this, that if you have any questions about the Shroud of Turin, spend a little time on shroud.com. Like I said, nobody's going to track you. Nobody's going to know you were there. You can do it clandestinely if you'd like. And the only way we'll know who you are is if you happen to join our mailing list. And there you only need an email address. You don't even have to put your name in. But any message I have would simply be this, that if there's any interest on your part as a listener to this piece of cloth and what it might mean to you or to somebody else, spend a little time doing some real study of it like anything else that's so important in our lives, um, giving it a fair opportunity to study it, I think will lead you to perhaps a conclusion you might not have had before. 
Is Shroud.com the best place for people to follow your work online or are there other places people can follow? No, that's, that far, far and away is the best place. We have the largest, the oldest, and the most extensive resource on the internet when it comes to the Shroud. People often make a big deal about the fact that we're the number one search result, organic search result for Shroud of Turin on Google. And I have to point out to people, we're two years older than Google. <laughs> we started in January of 96. Google came along in 98. I wonder what the radiocarbon dating would say. 1932. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Barry Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us on this late hour. It's been a, a great pleasure and privilege to have you on. Well, Casey, it's been my pleasure. Listen, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to express myself freely the way you have. It's one of the reasons I like podcasts better than the stupid TV documentaries. I've appeared in more than 20 of those. They're terrible. They're heavily edited. And I know that the opportunity to speak freely the way you've given me gives people an opportunity to really think about it and to hear all these different points of view that you'll never hear in a history or discovery channel documentary. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on and may God bless you. Thank you. And God bless you and yours and all your listeners and a joyous Easter to those who celebrate. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my special two-part interview with professional photographer Barry Schwartz of the Shroud of Turin Research Project. As it will likely come as no surprise to Mr. Schwartz, I have a much different interpretation about the implications of the miraculous image left upon this ancient piece of linen, which I will share in the next and final episode of this special. I will add that it may be of interest to our guest, Mr. Schwartz, to know, in reference to our discussion about Jesus' facial hair, that the Gospels actually never mention the plucking of Jesus' beard. In fact, the Gospels give no real description of Jesus' physical appearance at all. The verse Barry was thinking of comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6. It states, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. What's so fascinating about that statement is it was written some 700 years before the life of Jesus. I want to thank Mr. Schwartz for giving a special insight into the Shroud of Turin and for sharing about his own faith journey. You can find all you want to know and more about this ancient piece of linen at www.shroud.com. Don't forget to pack a lunch and a snack when you visit because you might just be there a while. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, please follow the link in the show description where for $5 a month you can get monthly long-form bonus episodes. If you have questions or comments, please send me an email at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our Twitter at Casey Knowlton or the Facebook page This Late Hour. Thank you so much for joining me for the sixth episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour. Join me next week on our Lord's Ascension Day as we finish this special three-part series on The Shroud of Turin. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless.